Live from Tel Aviv, two nice Jewish boys. Hi, I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Noor Menninger. This podcast is made in cooperation with the Jewish Journal, www.jewishjournal.com. You promised a dove. Those words were written by the Israeli poet Shmuel Hasfari in his song Winter 73. Some interpreted them as a sort of eulogy to peace, a peace which was promised to a generation of Israelis who only found themselves disappointed time after time at the ever-eluding prospect of peace with the Arab world. The song was written around the same time as the Oslo Accords were signed between Israel and the PLO, a time of great hope for this generation, the kids of 73. But soon they were devastated once again. With the outbreak of the Second Intifada, many gave up hope for the prospect of peace. Some pointed their fingers at the Israeli leadership, who failed them. Some blamed the settlement movement, while others pinned the failure to attain peace on the Palestinians' lack of determination. Dr. Inat Wilf, a former member of Knesset, grew up as a member of the Labour Party and was an ardent advocate of the two-state solution. She believed that if only Israel and its leaders would propose the right deal at the right time, we would have peace. We would have that elusive and elusive dove. The kids of 73 had a childhood full of hope and aspirations. They grew up to the peace treaty with Egypt and Jordan and the Oslo Accords, However, the failure of those accords, the atrocities of the Second Intifada, the stalemates upon stalemates in the peace process, caused many in that generation to abandon hope. Dr. Wilf joins us today to talk about her experiences both in and out of politics and how they shaped her perspective on the peace process. Two Nice Jewish Boys is produced by us on our free time. If you feel like helping us out and donating, Go to 2NJB.com slash donate. Any donation is much appreciated. How are you? Thank you for joining us. Hello. Hi. Thank you. So tell us what it was like uh, during the time, I guess, to put us in in context during the time of the Oslo Accords. What was going through your mind, through your generations? Where were you, first of all, then? I was in Jerusalem, where I was born and raised. Uh, Those were the years uh, immediately after my military service. And uh, the sense was really a sense of great hope. Uh, It was more than hope, actually. It was the sense that this is it. We're done. We're, it's around the corner. We had a premise. We had an assumption, which said that the day that the Palestinians would have a state of their own is the day we would have peace. Uh, And that's it. We're on the road to doing that. Uh, My generation, the generation of the kids of 73, is the generation of the first intifada, the intifada that really kind of got my generation to say, "We we shouldn't be there. They have a legitimate right to govern themselves. We should divide the country. And as soon as they're able to govern themselves, we will have peace. So there was a sense of, of we elected a prime minister, we elected a government precisely on this premise. Uh, Rabin was elected on the notion of changing the priorities, which really was just a code word for we're done with the settlements, we're done investing in the West Bank, Israel's priority is now going to be within the Green Line. And with the Oslo Accords, the sense was that this is it. We, we're we're going to be done fairly soon. It was soon. this kind of buildup. I mean, you guys elected this guy to do a job. He did the job. You're right on the brink of peace. Absolutely. You're about to sign it, and everything's 
Going Everything's to be ready pitch, to go. Yeah. Pitch perfect. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, really, that was the era of soaring speeches, uh, handshakes on manicured lawns, doves yeah. being uh, flown as part of the various ceremonies. Uh, often people forget that uh, the Oslo Accords were very quickly followed by the peace agreement with Jordan, which was a very easy peace, um, basically no territorial questions. Uh, so really there was the sense of like this domino of peace. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up as a young kid. Uh, my uh, The kids were taken out with flags to welcome the convoy of, uh, of Sadat coming to Israel. So the, the, the thing, the sense was that this was a domino. So Egypt and the Palestinians Jordan. and Jordan and Syria was already kind of on the horizon. The sense of like, okay, we're going to get that done. So the sense was like, this is it. And we also need to remember the context of the 90s, the end of the Soviet Union, apartheid in South Africa is over, Northern Ireland is signing a peace agreement. So the sense was that the world is getting its act together, you know, mm-hmm. kind of everything is Little being settled. Little did we know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe we were. Maybe yeah. something just went like horribly awry, <laughs> but maybe things were going in the right direction. Um, but what, I mean, was this the sense also on the Israeli street in general? I mean, this was like nationwide. Was it city? Was it was it Tel just Aviv. in Jerusalem, just in Tel Aviv? Or was it just kind of So all it over? clearly was the sense, broadly speaking, of the peace camp, uh, the labor party, but also maybe... I think even people on the right, not the extreme settler right, but even people on the moderate right, I think allowed themselves for a brief moment to hope, to think Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe, maybe this is really happening. But... um, What was the Likud's reaction, for example, to the Oslo Accords? Look, it's very difficult for me to now remember the specifics of, uh, of each party, but broadly, this was opposition, uh, opposition. There was also a lot of uh, questioning within um, the Israeli peace camp. Ehud Barak at the time, which was a rising leader, he was from the military, talked about it as uh, Swiss cheese, an agreement that has many holes in it. So there was also skepticism about the agreement itself, but generally people allowed themselves at least to hope, mm-hmm. to think that it might be possible. Uh, but then uh, things very quickly turned uh very wrong. I mean, it started really with uh, the massacre in Hebron. Which uh, was what, when? 95. Uh, in the Purim, where basically coming close to the mark. Uh, 94. It, no, it should be 94, I think, because... Baruch Goldstein. Yeah, Baruch ah. um, Which was a shock. I, that I remember at the time was already in the United States. Studying. What was the context of the terror uh, attack? Well, uh, ultimately, I think uh, it was to derail. Uh, the, he was a, he's the, a settler, right? He was a settler. Religious. He was religious, and he was also, um, from our perspective, the Sabras, not Israeli. 
Mm. Uh, I remember the even the kind of the sense of the time was like, oh, these are the crazy Anglo settlers mm. that are pushing their agenda on us. He was right. from Kiryat Arba, right? Yes. And related yeah. to Kahana. Yes, exactly. So right. he really came from that kind of Anglo settler, right wing, uh, racist background. And A quick rundown for our listeners. I mean, I don't know the whole story in details, but basically he was a settler from Kiryat Arba who broke into a mosque in Hebron and with a with gun and uh, shot gun. dozens of uh, dozens of uh, yeah yes 29 uh, worshippers and many more were injured were injured yeah and he's yes. in jail until today i think yeah and the mosque is of course Rachel's tomb so it's this yeah. mosque and also yeah. a holy place for the jews uh, and really uh, and that triggered the after that is when we begin to have the suicide bombings mm-hmm. uh, on the buses And this was a time when people were really trying to hold on still to the idea of peace. Uh, the notion was like, okay, we will not uh, give in to the extremists on either side. You know, the extremist Jews who are committing the massacres, the extremist Palestinians who are blowing up the buses. But this was really the beginning of that kind of, uh, inter- call it interaction, that kind of very... visceral physical violence in the streets um, and that eventually led to Rabin's being Rabin being murdered yeah and in parallel what you saw is everything was getting more violent more extreme I remember from my home in Jerusalem you could hear the demonstrations we live not so far from the area of the Prime Minister's office the government offices this is where the demonstrations were taking place the demonstrations against Oslo against the various uh, steps of implementing Oslo and it just got more and more violent and extreme and I remember I once went to look at one of these demonstrations and it was a horrifying I mean the hatred in the did you see the Nazi uniform or the I didn't go coffin to, or... I, I didn't go to that particular demonstration I didn't go to see that one I went to see the demonstrations that were the more permanent ones uh, again uh, at the Prime Minister's office but I did see hate uh, there was it was really uh, mm-hmm. and, and it was frightening I remember as a young woman being very scared for of what I saw but I admit that I also uh, made the mistake of many at the time of thinking that okay these people are opposing and but but they are history they are ultimately right now on the losing side of history mm-hmm. on the wrong side of history and they're fi- fighting a rearguard battle for a cause that no one can support and at one moment, Um, was it was it soon afterwards that you realized that that maybe this wasn't the case oh that no, they no, no that took a much much longer time I mean we have the Rabin assassination the Netanyahu years and then you have Barack a lot of people uh, there's been this narrative that people kind of backtrack which is completely wrong that kind of peace ended with the Rabin assassination uh-huh. uh, it's a narrative also that people That Palestinians and anti-israeli people like to promote because it's like oh uh, peace ended with Rabin and it's your fault you know you had a guy who tried it you killed him so right. we chose it but it's your signed with the Palestinians exactly and it's now continued but most important Barack was elected and Barack was elected on a very clear agenda of going much further than Rabin was on the eve of his assassination 
Barack basically very clearly went to elections on the agenda of signing a final peace agreement with the Palestinians, and he got the majority. So it's not as if people uh, thought that peace was over. Mm-hmm. It was still the 90s. There was still a sense that the world is getting its act together, despite everything that happened in Israel. So people went to vote for Barack for that purpose. So your reaction was resilience in the face of Rabin's assassination? When, Rabin's, when Rabin was assassinated, you looked at that and you said, there's still a chance. Uh, well, Because we'd the, lose the, hope by now, I think. Yeah. <laughs> the, the first response was, of course, one of absolute uh, shock. Uh, yeah. This was really unprecedented. Uh, and of course, it also reflected, a lot of people don't remember that Rabin was the beautiful Israel, the Sabra, the warrior, the general uh, of 67. He is murdered by a religious man from uh, kind of the more the margins of Israeli society with an extremist agenda. So it also represented much more than just the ideological question over Oslo and the territories, there was a sense of like an entire murder of a certain kind of Israel. Mm -hmm. That that kind of Israel that Rabin represented was being assassinated, not just... In retrospect, it was, in a sense. Um, You could argue that it was part of a whole change, and this was a very dramatic moment in it, but the sense was, I remember a lot of people that... On that day, what they said is that this is not our country anymore. This was the most common response. From people with, from which side, from both sides? Uh, generally from the labor, call it the labor, but broadly Center. speaking, not, not as a political movement, but as that kind of Israel. Mm-hmm. The secular, Zionist. Around 50%. Uh, kind of, yeah. Yeah, that 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 ha- that had built Israel, fought for it, shaped it in a certain way. It's kind of reminiscent of, well, not reminiscent, but it kind of makes you think of what's going on in the states right now with people on the on the left saying, you know, as as Trump rose to power, this is not my America. He's not my president. So people were saying that about Israel. Yeah, this that, isn't that, my that country. That was the on that night. This is what I think many, many, many people said. Um, so Barack but, tried to pick up where Rabin exactly. left off. So except for the shock of that night, but yes, broadly the sense among the camp was one of perseverance, of resilience, of still continuing with the seeking peace. The notion was that it's still possible. At this yep. moment, you don't see people raising the question of whether it's possible. And this is why a lot of people don't understand the history of Israel. They think it started then it actually started after Barack with the Second Intifada. The questioning really only starts then. Until then, there is an effort, there is a belief, there is a focus. Why was Barack and the story of Barack going to Camp David so devastating for the whole idea of peace in a way that Rabin's assassination was not? Because Barack actually went and did it. And offered. And, and, put, and put on the table... A proposal that for Israelis on the left should have been, was considered fair. But wasn't he a lame duck by then? He was a lame duck later after the proposal Mm -hmm. when he continued to negotiate in Taba. 
But the question was, again, these are now the excuses we look back at. Right. What's very simple and what was very clear to Israelis is Barak went to Camp David. There was no question about his sincerity. He wanted to make peace. He was willing to go where no one went before, dividing Jerusalem, uh, almost all of the territories, refugees. a full Palestinian state on the refugees. The, the notion was, I guess, a few tens of thousands. Right. But symbolic. The, the, the symbolic, but that it's over. This is something that anyone from the left thought that the Palestinians would say yes to. Right. That was the premise. And of course they did. They didn't. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> for, a mo- for a moment there uh, okay wait so, a minute sorry you, you caught me off guard there I was like uh, everyone knows I didn't uh, okay so what a twist <laughs> yes that would be nice yeah that yeah, would be we interesting would be, we would be we would be discussing a very very different history or we wouldn't be discussing it at all probably <laughs> you'd be talking the, we'd be discussing the most recent fashion uh, yeah but uh, yeah so that uh, and so why didn't they take it that was exactly the question that Israelis were asking themselves. Why? What's going on? And again, it wasn't just that particular moment. What followed was a descent into this bloody mayhem, which was misnamed the Second Intifada, but really bared no semblance to the first one. How so? The first Intifada was really this like stones and it was mostly in the West Bank and you had this heroic images that were almost mimicking the Zionist images of the young kid with the, with the sling and the tank. This was bloody massacre of families in buses, in cafes. And yeah. this was in supposedly legitimate Israel, right? This was happening mm-hmm. in Tel Aviv, in Haifa, in Beersheva, <clears throat> in Netanya. So for someone like me who grew up with the notion that, okay, there is legitimate Israel, that's Israel within the Green Line, and the West Bank and Gaza are not Israel, and the, the fact that people were being massacred in cafes, in, in hotels in Netanya, Raise the question of why here? What is it that you want? What do you want? You could have had a state. You didn't say yes. And not only are you not saying yes, you're engaging in this campaign of bloody massacres within our state. What message exactly are you trying to convey to me who is supposedly your ally? Mm -hmm. Did you ever find an answer? Oh, yes. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I think it wasn't a good one. <laughs> um, I, and for that, I just have to say, why was this such a big question, that the, a big issue that the Palestinians did not say yes to Barak? Because in our understanding of history, uh, people who want a state say yes. It's really that simple. That's what we did. Exactly. That's what we did. When we talk about partition, we have images of people dancing in the streets and all that. But if we really think about partition, what did partition say? What did the UN really say to the Zionist movement? You know what? We're reneging on the promise you got for the League of Nations. You're getting only half of the land. Most of it is actually the Negev Desert. We know you're called the Zionist movement, but no Zion for you guys. Jerusalem and its surroundings just will the Z. be. Exactly, you get yeah. just the Z. 
Uh, and we know you're called the Jewish people, which is in every language except English and French is the Judean people. So we know you're the Judean people, but you're not getting Judea. So basically, the Zionist movement is faced with a really stark choice. You can have a state and be sovereign, but it's on half of the land and your symbols, the biggest symbols of who you are, are out of the picture. And yet we say yes. Mm-hmm. So for the Zionist understanding of history, a people who are truly focused on being a sovereign and free people in their land say yes. And when the Palestinians didn't say yes, that's when the soul-searching questioning began. And when it was followed by this bloody massacre, this is really when people like me began to say, okay, so what the hell do you want? Because if you want a state for yourself in the West Bank and Gaza, I'll fight with you shoulder to shoulder. Mm-hmm. But if you're telling me basically that more that you want a state for yourself, you still cannot stomach that me, my people, the Jewish people, we will have a state next to you. If you're basically telling me that the choice here is between you and me, you and us, then I choose us. And I have no moral qualms about it. It's, it's not yeah. a hard choice. I remember at the time you had all these op-eds, the moral collapse of the Israeli left. And I remember thinking, you have to be joking. That was a moment of moral clarity. If, if the question is about choosing my own survival, I do it. It's the yeah. moral choice. Do you, how, did you, how did you attain that message? How, do you, how did you gather that? I mean, other than kind of, which I guess is the best method, the facts on the ground. But how did you... Did you speak with Palestinians? Did you speak with, uh, I mean, because someone could look at the situation and say, okay, the problem is with the Arab uh, Palestinian leadership. Maybe the people themselves want peace and they're being led astray by. So first in general, uh, this is my general view, the notion of a leadership disconnected from the people Mm -hmm. does not exist. Uh, Not in dictatorships and not in democracies. Leaderships, disconnected from the people will survive 36 hours. Leaderships to survive, whether it's a dictatorship, whether it's a democracy, they can open a gap from their people, but it can't be massive. They can't be disconnected. They can maybe try to move their people a little bit, but they can't be disconnected. The notion that you have a Palestinian ethos on the one hand that is peace-seeking, wants to divide the land, and the leadership is leading it astray, I think... Well, if you look at Syria, sorry, but if you look at Syria, for example, before the Mm -hmm. war, um, I'm not speaking about, I don't know, maybe about Israel. There was the same notion, but... It's such a minority ruling a majority that, and they have nothing to do with each other, and only by the force of brutality they. So, can you argue that there are relations, deep relations between the leadership of Assad and the Sunni majority in Syria, for example, or in Jordan, or Jordan? For that matter. So we can open a discussion here, and a lot of people misunderstand Syria. But what a lot of people fail to understand is that Assad has a very broad base, which is basically a coalition of minorities. A coalition of minorities in Syria that understood that he is, that in that kind of coalition, uh, they have this, this is a guarantee of their survival. 
because if they will have to live as minorities under uh, a majority Sunni regime, uh, they're toast. So the notion that Assad is like some disconnected, bereft of support, only rules through brutality, that's a story that is convenient for some people, but again, shows a deep, generally Western paternalism and misunderstanding of how actual relationships are established. So you say there's so, always correlation bet- between the leadership yeah, and uh, the people. Yes. Any effort to claim differently is, uh, it, it just doesn't hold. No leader can hold when they are disconnected from their people in any kind of regime. Okay. So uh, brutality will only take you so far. Ultimately, you have to govern according to a kind of ethos that... People feel that is um, that they are being uh, somehow so, represented. Exactly. So yes, but I did meet with Palestinians. To your question, at the time, I was still a member of the Israeli Left. I was a member of the Labor Party. I was working with Shimon Peres, and you know, there's all these, especially Europeans of goodwill. They think we just get Israelis and Palestinians to talk, and peace will emerge. So I was considered a moderate Israeli, you know, supporting two states still, despite everything. And I was asked to meet moderate Palestinians. And in those meetings, um, we had these weekend workshops. And I realized that their moderation was a moderation of resignation. They basically said things like, oh, we get it. You're here. You're powerful. You stole our land. Um And someone even told me, you were born here, so we will not send you away. I remember thinking, thank you very much. And, but it was this kind of resignation to, with Israeli power. But then we would have those like post-dinner conversations and they would say things like, but the Jewish people are not a people, you're only a religion. Now, I love to define myself as a devout atheist. And uh, the notion that Judaism is only religion is both wrong and deeply offensive to a substantial share of the non-religious part of the Jews. Uh, it certainly excludes me. So they said Judaism is only religion, which is wrong. And then they said, and this whole thing you say about this land being yours, it's a story you made up so that you could steal our own. You have no connection to this land. And I remember thinking again. But we're here to talk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I remember thinking, okay, um, to you don't need to believe in God. You certainly don't need to be Jewish to acknowledge that one of the most established long-term relationships between a people and a land in history, in ritual, in practice, in poetry is between the people of Israel and the land of Israel. To argue that all of that was concocted over... centuries so that at the end of the 19th century a group of people can come to a land to which they had no connection and steal it from its inhabitants which was un- uninhabitable in many ways well there, there were not inhabitants the attra- oh, not the most attractive land yeah, let's say exactly uh, i i always uh, am amused i mean sadly amused but when people talk about zionism as a colonial movement because i always say as a colonial movement we, we really didn't choose a place with much to right. offer uh you know no natural yeah. resources nothing to take uh So uh, the, the desert, barren <laughs> desert and planted our flag and we're like, this is ours. Everyone's yeah, like, everybody's okay. like, okay, take it. 
Um, so I went back from, so of course they put the things together and they said, look, because you're not a people and there's no connection to this land, you have no right to self-determination. The right to self-determination belongs to people and uh, certainly not here in a land to which you have no connection. And I went back from these meetings and I was like, okay, these are the moderates. And if these are the moderates, then all the premises I had about the conflict, this is a much deeper, bigger, broader conflict than what I was led to believe. Mm -hmm. That it's about territories. How come it took you so long to realize that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sorry for being so blunt, but... No, absolutely. Uh, Look, because we grew up with a certain premise that was never put to the test. Uh, and, and that you can't really, you can make assumptions, but it's very different, uh, when you make assumptions, uh, when the other person tells me, okay, the Arabs will never want peace. Okay. You're making a certain assumption, but until you put it to the test, you're not going to convince me. What if they changed too in those 10 years since 93, 94, you know, what if they neglect their hopes? and 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 get got back to their old beliefs in a sense you know what i'm saying so i'm just you know speculating here to play the devil's advocate Uh, well it it actually doesn't work if you look at the span of history to argue that a group of people had a certain ethos for for decades and then for five years the ethos completely changed right and then came back Again, people's okay. histories, narratives don't work in that way. There are historical moments that create pressures, uh, such as the, the moment of partition for the Zionist movement. Yeah, the Zionists would have liked to have the entirety of the land. But when faced with a choice, what, be, what became clear was the DNA of the Zionist movement, which was sovereignty, sovereignty over everything. But sorry for pressuring, sure. pressuring this point, but if you were to talk to moderate uh, Palestinians, let's say in 92 or in 82, wouldn't you find moderate Palestinians who would tell you the complete, who would tell you that we can coexist and we are willing, you know what I'm saying? I, I, you have it today too, and, and, a lot right. of the, and a lot of the work that I... This is why things take time, why you have to put your premise to the test. You have to, people can say a whole lot of things, but when faced with a decision, that's when their character comes out. Right. So they were faced with a decision. And with Barack, more than Oslo, Oslo was a point in a process. Barack put a decision on the table. Olmert did it again in 2008. A clear decision, an opportunity unadulterated to have a state. This was the first moment, really, since 1947. Up until then, you have a lot of stuff. But this was the first clear, distinct moment when the Palestinians are faced with a very specific choice to have a state, and they don't say yes. You literally did not have that before, from 1947 to 2000, you don't have such a specific moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think for many people, there was a need to see that, to see that a people, when faced with that choice, you can say a lot of things when you're not faced with a choice, but to see that when faced with a choice, they don't say yes, I think the process could not have begun before the Palestinians 
were faced with this choice because then I could keep on making excuses on their behalf. We never offered them. We never gave them a chance. We never, they never, but with my own eyes, they get the chance, they don't say yes, then I have to need to begin to think about it. So after this, uh, the, to go back after this conference that you were at, mm-hmm. you were speaking yeah. with these moderate, Yeah. I mean, how, how did you react to that? So this began a journey for me uh, in which I said, okay, there has to be, if peace is ever to take place, we need to recognize each other's rights. It can't be about, okay, you're here, you stole it. I realized that what I need to hear from the Palestinians, people, leadership, anyone, is that they recognize the right of the Jewish people to self-determination in their land. Not the exclusive right, not the superior right. I'm not demanding the exclusive and superior right. I still continue to oppose Jews who insist that they have an exclusive and superior right. I said that I have zero patience for supremacists on either side, Jews Mm -hmm. and Arabs, anyone who thinks that they can insist on the exclusive and superior right to this land. But there has to very much be a recognition of the right of the other. And what I realized is that they recognized my might. They were very clear on that. But they refused to recognize that I had any right here. And in that, they were confirming the notion that the day that I no longer have might is the day that I'm no longer here because I have no right. So it began a journey for me to seek Palestinians of note who would say something as simple as the Jews have a right to be here too, to this land. It is their homeland. They have a history here. They are an indigenous people who have come home. They're not foreigners. They're not colonialists, not crusaders. It's reasonable. Uh, And I found one, one and a half, I've written about it, but they're very courageous. Out of, what do you mean one and a half? Out of how many? I reached out, I wrote, I mean, literally, and by now I could say... The argument is that many are afraid to, many might feel that, but they're afraid to express that thought. Perfect. So when you're saying people are afraid... People are, and, and I agree, this man, uh, his name is Mohammed Dajani, who said that, and I wrote about him saying that, we had to be extremely courageous, because you're saying people are afraid. What does it mean when you need courage to express an opinion? That the le- leadership... Not the leadership, it means that the society, the ethos is now with you. I don't need courage. Hey, the leadership of Israel might not be where I am today. Do I need courage to express the view that the Arab Palestinians have a right to self-determination in this land? No, I'm saying it. No courage. There's no... I don't need to be a courageous person to say that because I know... Because I know that there is a substantial share of the Israeli public that believes it and I don't need any courage to express those views. For a Palestinian to express those views, they need tremendous amount of courage and the backlash that he got was not from the leadership it was from colleagues from people his car was torched he lost his job this was not the leadership Mm -hmm. so what it is exactly the question of what is the ethos what is the governing ethos of a society but but you speak of the ethos as if as if a people can't be suppressed I, I, what I'm wondering is maybe because there's there we have to make a separate. You're saying okay, you have the freedom to express those ideas because 
they have a place in the collective, I guess, psyche of Israeli society. There's room for them in our communal, I don't know, thinking. Think tank. Yeah. 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 So you can express that. But whereas the Palestinians, they need courage to separate from the, 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 the flock and kind of express these outrageous ideas. But, but pe- uh, people can also be suppressed, meaning they can have le- real fears of... Uh, for for their I don't know their life or their well being, meaning maybe it's you get what I'm saying like maybe there is a, a a foundation for those kind of opinions and those kind of thoughts, but it's being repressed by by a totalitarian totalitarian rule. tyrannical rule. Again, I do not Again, accept I, I, that. I feel like yeah. I need to say for devil's advocate. No, yeah, but, yeah. Also, <laughs> uh, but I completely don't accept it because it's also the view of a Palestinian sitting freely in Canada. It's not, I mean, the notion that they are suppressed, I mean, it's been a view that's been con- continuous. You can look mm-hmm. everywhere. This is the ethos that, so you could say it's brainwashing, but this is what everyone, this is the schooling, this is the songs, this is the television. Uh, it's not like some leader saying, think that. I mean, this belongs in an era, I don't know if it was ever possible that you could make people. No, th- this is something that is very personal. Rooted. The people that presented those views to me were not suppressed in any way. They. It's not like the, they're being dragged to no, the, uh, the executioner's block. No, uh, they were very and... clear that this is their... Although, sorry, but we had Basim Eid. Yes. And it was very interesting, but the most interesting part yeah. was when I drove him back to his car. Mm-hmm. And he told me that... Um, he told me basically that he knows many people who have the same opinion as he does, which is pro-Israel, he recognizes our existence, etc., yeah. etc. Et but he is the only one who can say that because he's now so famous that he knows that he won't go to jail, whereas his friends and colleagues who share his opinion are just afraid because the Palestinian Authority is so corrupt. And he also told me, just because I'm telling you, he also told me that he'd rather the status quo state like today because he'd rather have no state than a state in which such a corrupt government takes the throne. So this is why I'm, you know... Again, corruption is one thing. Uh, People don't basically go to jail in the Palestinian Authority for expressing a view that the Jewish people have the right to self-determination. They go to jail for other things which are like not selling. acceptable. Yeah, but uh, expressing that right. view, you one really needs to go through and to see how unacceptable is it is as a social view to understand. Now there may be more there may be few more people who would be willing to express that view, but I think we can still agree that it requires a tremendous amount of courage to express it. Right. And it's the courage that comes from being different in your society, not from the oppression of a regime. It happened, it was an unacceptable view before the Palestinian Authority. So I I think it's too easy to somehow, we always had, the Israeli left always had this romantic view of masses of Arabs wanting peace with Israel, but put down by tyrannical regimes. And 
I really, I don't accept that. I, I think, as I said again, you give leadership credit to the people. In the end of the day, you give them the credit. More than that, for... leaderships cannot depart from people's too much. They cannot right. express views. Uh, they will not survive if they are not in touch with where the main area, the main views are of the people that they claim to govern. So. Uh, so on this issue, they're clearly courageous. Now, I was trying to think why. Why do they need to be courageous? Why is it not a more common view? And here, I don't accept the notion of good and evil among collectives. I don't believe there is any explanatory power in saying the Jews are good and the Arabs are bad or the Arabs are good and the Jews are bad. This doesn't exist among collectives. It could happen maybe among individuals, but not among collectives. So I was trying to think, why do Arabs need so much courage to say something which is literally a five-year-old thing, right? You have the right to this. I have the right to this. I can't have all of it. You can't have all of it. Let's figure out how to Rationality, divide. let's say. Yeah. But so why is it so difficult? And I don't accept the notion that they're bad. And the more I reflected on it, the more I realized that from their perspective, we're actually asking them for quite a lot. Because what are we saying, really? We're asking the Arabs to accept, first of all, that a people have come home after 2,000 years. Now, seriously, who does that, right? I mean, it's... Uh, we think of Zionism as a tremendously inspiring story, a people discriminated, marginalized, persecuted for centuries, one day find within them the power to rise up, to change the course of history, to rehabilitate and liberate themselves and their homeland. An inspiring story. And then I'm, you kind of remember that inspiring and insane tend to be close cousins, right? It's, it's an inspiring story for us, but I also acknowledge that it is an insane story for pretty much everyone else. So, I mean, really, who comes home after 2,000 years, knocks at the door and says, honey, I'm home. Yeah. So I think we need also, to... Also, honey, get out. <laughs> no, no. I, it's very important, actually. Yeah. It's... It, it, it's I can't stress that point enough. The notion that the honey I'm home was coupled with a honey get out is wrong. Okay. You will go to all the early Zionist uh, writings. There was a very clear sense. You can blame them for being naive, mm -hmm. but not for being ill-willed. How early, you know. There was a very clear sense that they will come and that they will bring their industry and goodwill and... You're Desire speaking 19th to century talking, notions? Yeah. I'm, because then there were less Arabs yes, but in at, Israel. I, Maybe if they knew that there would be triple or quarter. But still, the notion was, and by the way, they were right. The notion was is that there is room for everyone. We are 12 million people here today between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. So there mm -hmm. was room. Yeah. And they believed that bringing industry and goodwill and that they would be welcomed. Mm -hmm. So you can blame them for being naive, mm -hmm. uh, and not everyone was naive, but not for being ill-willed. At no point was Zionism conceived by the Jews as a movement of displacement. Exactly the contrary. The notion was that it would be a movement that would create a place where there would be room for those who live and those who come. Mm -hmm. um, Which is in some way what the settlers say today, some of them. 
Uh, and people like they our do president. Not, okay, the, the settlers and the president are two very opposing camps. The president, uh, you write that the president belongs more to the naive view of we can live together yeah. as one country. He wants to, to um, uh, annex everything and give equal rights to all the Palestinians. And in, in that sense, the president is much more like the early Zionists right. in that belief. It has zero relationship to the supremacist ideology of the settlers that says we cannot live as equals in this land. So it must be very clear who has, who is, has the more right to this place than the mm -hmm. other. Yeah. Very, very different. Um, so what did you realize then? You were asking yourself okay, why, why. So why? I said, so the first element that I realized is that we're asking the Arabs to accept an insane story uh -huh. and that we need to appreciate that probably anywhere in the world, if a people came to a place after 2000 years and said, I'm home and this is mine too, it would have been a conflict making situation. That's why I'm saying they were not ill willed, but they were naive. Okay. Jabotinsky recognized that it's a conflict making situation. He's very much like Rivlin in his views, not ill-willed. He was not ill-willed and not naive. Most Zionists were not ill-willed and naive, thinking that they would be welcomed. So it's a conflict-making situation. We need to appreciate that. But it, but it matters that it's not just any people who came home. That's the second thing. It's the Jews. And that actually matters. It matters that it's the Jewish people who said, on honey, I'm home after 2,000 years. Who would years. want us as neighbors? neighbors it's we more asked to move in <laughs> yeah we asked to the move roommates. in exactly we asked to move in we're horrible roommates <laughs> we need to understand that by the time that the jewish people are coming with the honey i'm home uh, ideology yeah uh the region has been muslim and arab for about 1300 1400 years right during that time the people living in the region the muslims and the arabs have spent over a thousand years, under a theology, a social structure, an ideological structure that assumed that the Jews are relics headed to the dustbin of history. Why? They got the first book right, but not the sequels. So we kind of, <laughs> they're, they're okay to be tolerated as a small minority that is basically headed out of history because they, they didn't get it right. So they can be tolerated as long as they know their place. They're not the equals of Muslims in the society, as I'm sure you know, a lot of symbols and a lot of laws express that inequality. But, but basically, they're relics. They're done. Islam is the future. Mm -hmm. So these people are coming back. These are the people, the one who are supposed to be inferior relics headed to the dustbin of history. They're the ones making a comeback. Mm -hmm. We need to appreciate what a massive theological shock that is to the entire culture. Okay, but there has been some time since then. So enough time to recognize the fact that... Since the end of the 19th century? Yeah. No. Not enough time, you say? Pff, of course not. But reality is here now for at least 70 years. Ah, okay. So, so I get it that it's hard to comprehend, but... Reality is reality. That's why the moderates are saying, we get that you're here to stay. That doesn't make you equal. That doesn't make you have a right to be here, but that we and get that you're here. They're not even saying that you have... So uh, what, okay, so let me ask you differently because okay. we're also running out of time. Sure. What, what, what do you do nowadays okay. to 
to bring hope. Okay. So let me just uh, complete the, yeah, and sure. I'll try to do it, uh, the, the third element. Okay. Not only are we coming up with a crazy story of coming home after 2,000 years, challenging the entire theology and social structure of the Arab world and the Muslim world, uh, we're doing it when they have the numbers and we don't, to go back to your question, your reality. The day that Israel was established, the ratio of Jews to Arabs in the region was 1 to 50. Today, what did we do? We brought a lot of Jews. We made a lot of children. Great success. 2018, the ratio of Jews to Arabs in the region is 1 to 60. Literally, we have not made a dent in it. So think Wait, about you're saying it. we've gotten worse. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. They're making babies fast, yeah. <laughs> yes. So, of course, I mean, when you think about it, that they are the dominant force here. We are itsy-bitsy with the crazy story that challenges everything about who they are. Of course, they're going to say no. From their perspective... They feel empowered. 70 years is nothing. The right. Crusader state lasted 88 years without Jerusalem, 200 years. That's nothing. They have patience. Uh, yes. From their perspective, better to wait another day than to compromise, which means accepting the permanence of a Jewish presence in this land, a sovereign, equal Jewish presence, not a humiliated, right. inferior Jewish presence. So what's the hope? We have to uh, wait centuries. What? <laughs> Please no? don't tell me we have to wait centuries. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes when I uh, speak to uh, Irish groups, I always tell them, "Look, it took you eight hundred years, so give you know, yeah. chill, chill." Um, but uh, I say, "Look, it's very simple. There's only two ways this conflict ends: uh, either they win or we win. Really, that simple. They win, they throw us into the sea, they massacre us, and then they tell a great story." We always knew that these were foreigners, crusaders, colonialists. We resisted. The Palestinians emerge as heroes in the story. What a lot of people don't understand, and this goes to the question of the ethos, the Palestinians are not some helpless victims in a vacuum. In their telling of history, they are fighting a battle for justice at the end of which they emerge victorious. They are the vanguard of sending this crusader, humiliating, colonialist aberration of history out. So that's one way the conflict ends. That's not the hopeful one. I don't like uh, that one. For them, maybe, yes, for but them, not yes. for us. For us, uh, no. The other way it ends is that we win. How do we win? Uh, we obviously can't send them away. Uh, we can't massacre them. Uh, the ratio of 1 to 60 makes that impossible. So what does us winning look like? Us winning is literally the day when they realize that we're here to stay. And not only that we're here to stay, that we have come home. But when they accept our story and find a way to make it part of their story. How do we do that exactly? Two things, time and power. So I don't know how much time, but the only way we get to that point is by being powerful over time until they understand that we are going nowhere. It reminds me of someone, that those claims. Rings a bell? We had Professor Auman. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Wow, thank you. A, a game, yeah. You, you take, <laughs> not many people would take it as a compliment. He's but a smart man. He is. But what you're saying, basically, is game theory. Don't back down. Don't back down. Hold, and a, then... ba hold a big stick and, and you know, uh, on I, that... I, I, 
I don't know if, look, for example, within Israel, I do, because I think it will take time for the Arabs to truly lay down their arms in the most fundamental sense, to accept that the Jewish people are a people with a right here, people have come home. But I don't think that this means that they, in the interim, we need to be supremacists. The fact that they want it all, I don't think means that we should spend the interim wanting right. it all. I meant game, basic game theory. Basic, the notion... Hold the big stick and then... I uh, like to think of it mostly as standing our ground. But you said power. power. Be powerful. Be powerful. Stand our ground. Basically show that anything they try to send at us, military invasions, uh, terrorism... That we, re- that we are able to withstand, to prosper. The more that happens, and you're seeing it, you wear the other side down. Right. And they begin, they begin to say, look, they have a crazy story that they've come home after 2,000 years, but maybe it's true. Or, yeah. or they, they never send- will. I don't, okay. Or, you know. Never is a bit of an extended period. No, no, period. never, but for, for a long, you know, you can't know. You can't know. They can be very persistent for 300 or 400 years. I agree. In which we be. will suffer a great deal. Uh, both of us. So yeah, but, your but hope what is you're saying is, is that we'd, pro- we'd suffer more in any of the alternatives. Yes. If they win, we suffer more. Right. Yes. And if we, I don't know, win by, I don't know, giving them a state or whatever, then we suffer but, other consequences. But there's no option. I mean... What does it mean giving them a state? To date, and then we go back to that moment of realization, if the price of that state was to accept the permanence of the Jewish state, at least to date, they thought that that was too high a price to pay. Right. So, but what you're saying is, I mean, like going with your uh, thinking, we should make that offer every, I don't know, once in a while I to see if they've gotten should, ready yet. Oh, I should put it. I think we should put it on the website as a standing offer whenever. <laughs> I mean, really, the Israeli no uh, prime ministers, permanent uh, offer to the, to the Palestinians whenever you're ready, we're ready. This is uh, one of the things I promote within Israel. Is something it's like a Balfour Declaration for the Palestinians. Uh, well, I, know, <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I mean, I call it occupation, yes, settlements, no. Basically, we the military will need to stay in the West Bank as long as they are at war with us, which is their thinking. But I don't, the settlements don't need to be there. We don't need to be maximalists. We don't need mm-hmm. to be supremacists. We need to demonstrate. We, the Jewish people, need to perpetually demonstrate our willingness to share with an open offer that the day that they are willing to share, we will meet them. Right. And until then... We stand. We stand. Okay. I think you gave us uh, a lot of, uh, you know, food, food for, for thought. Th- yeah. Thank you. Maybe a viable solution. We'll see in... 300 years. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I like it. It actually makes sense. Um, so, Einat, uh, you give lectures. Yes. So if someone wants you in their event hall, they can. Con- <laughs> do you have a website? Yeah, right? there's a website. It's my last name, uh, wilf.org, and all the contacts are there, and, and they're then more than welcome. Social media? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I made a big uh, stink about leaving Facebook, but I am on... Uh, 
<laughs> but I am on Twitter. Now everyone's on Telegram, so maybe I'll open a channel. Wait, did you, but... did you tweet about leaving Facebook? <laughs> no, I actually wrote a very long post about this was my last uh, Facebook post. Wow, wow. Everyone's willing to go read it. But it's a whole, it's a whole diatribe against Facebook. So. Okay. Okay, I got to check awesome. that out. So before we go, we have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal, which is a newspaper mm -hmm. and, uh, and a Jewish uh, news source, uh, jewishjournal.com in Los Angeles. They have great pieces and great articles mm -hmm. and writers. Check them out. And, and we have uh, a donate link on the website. We do this on our free time, guys. So if you guys want to throw us some cash, we <laughs> will not object at all. Yes. So give us all your money. <laughs> 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 Bye, guys. Hey, Nut, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so Bye. much. Bye.